Hey, thanks for joining us at Connection Point Church. You know, we would love for you to stay connected and a simple way for you to do that is to subscribe so that each week you can get notified when new content goes live. We'd also love to keep in touch with you throughout the week and the best way to do this is through our Connection Point Facebook page. Now with all that being said, let's go to this week's message with our lead pastor, Zach Maddox. Well, our world is rather divided today. People do some rather despicable things to one another. Sadly, it seems education and technology help us to become crueler and more efficient in greed and violence. Many express hatred or at least disdain toward their neighbors near and far. We're more connected digitally than ever before, and we've never been more alone. So how does this change? How can people begin to view each other with equal dignity and worth, the way God created them in his image? Maybe more specifically for our conversation today is, is how does racism get resolved? This is a question that we're seeking to answer today as we continue our Better Together series with a message on Jesus and racism. So if you have your Bibles, hey, I hope you do. But good news, if you don't, check underneath the chair in front of you. Hey, we've got one there for you today. Because we want you to have God's Word. And if you don't have a Bible at home, take that one home with you. We've got more. We mean for those to leave. So feel free to take that home if you don't have a Bible. We want you to daily have access to God's words every day. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 13 this morning. I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Just to stretch your legs one more time. It's pretty short, so it's going to be up and down. But we're going to be in, in John chapter 13, taking a look at verse 34 and 35. Setting is Jesus is having a final meal with his closest followers. And here's what he shares with them. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. These are the very words of God. You may be seated this morning. So we've been working through a year-long Better Together message series. And so now we're in this last section dealing with righteous justice. Last week we discovered that, that we can participate in the justice of God by continuing the mission of Jesus when you look at Luke chapter 4, you find that Jesus did justice in three very important ways. By sharing good news, showing compassion, and participating in justice advocacy. Three things. And the great thing is Connection Point is already making an incredible difference in these three areas in our community and beyond our community. Uh, it was really fun this week to sit down uh, with Pastor Andrew, who, who works on our website, and I felt like it'd be worthwhile to highlight how we're doing that, but more importantly, invite you to be a part of that. God's doing incredible things through the people of Connection Point Church in our community, and you're invited to participate. Uh, so we got a couple of pictures that kind of shows you where to find that. It's all online this morning. It's live now. If you go to our homepage and scroll down a little bit to the places you can get plugged into community, here's where it's going to lead you. So if you scroll down, there's Pastor Jim. Hi, Pastor Jim. So we've got ways to make a difference in our community, and if you push on that button... Here's where you go. Here's ways Connection Point Church is making a difference locally and beyond where we're at. So we've got people that are prayer walking. Right now, this is downtown Lafayette, but really it's greater Lafayette. 
So as you look at that, it's opportunities to go and pray and bring the kingdom of God in places where it needs to go. Because I'll tell you right now, Jesus is there. We're simply joining him as we walk. Another thing, Discovery Bible Studies and Community Corrections. So ways that we're sharing good news. So we've had Bible studies going on Wednesday and Saturday nights in Community Corrections for at least a year now. Cool thing, one of the guys that was in Community Corrections, a part of our Bible studies, he's now out, he's working, and uh, he asked, could I do Discovery Bible Studies with other guys coming out? So now, not only in Community Corrections, but in our community, people are being touched. Isn't that awesome? Reaching our international community. Lots of ways that we're doing that. So really what this is here for is your opportunity to click and say, I want to be a part of proclaiming the good news this way. Or I want to be a part of sharing compassion this way through our food pantry. Uh, you can link to Convoy of Hope. We mentioned that last week. They're in Haiti right now. So we just can continue to resource them and we're partnering with them that way. Uh, food finders, we partner with them. Lafayette Transitional Housing, Lafayette Urban Ministry. We've got people in our congregation plugged into all of these places. One of our members sits on the board for LUM. And we've got, in terms of justice advocacy, a group, Civil Righteousness, do a great job of advocating for what we talked about last week, universal equality. So we actually have a regional rep in our church, and they do a prayer meeting on Thursday nights. You're welcome to join them for that. Free International, I'm going to jump down to Project Rescue. These are two organizations, Free International in the U.S., Project Rescue Overseas, working to fight against human trafficking and sex slavery. We already partner with them, and you can be a part of that too. Gifts of Grace, so ministering to orphans, Matrix, Life Care Center, Trinity Life Ministry. So we have people in all of these things. Isn't that awesome? We should celebrate those things. Praise God. And so you're invited to make a difference, continuing the mission of Jesus through these organizations that we partner with, because we all have this incredible opportunity, and we don't want to miss it. And now today, what we want to do is continue the conversation of righteous justice by looking at the issue of racism. And when it comes to Jesus and racism, it's important we consider three kingdom concepts that help us deal with this justice issue rightly. And here's those three kingdom concepts. The first one is using power rightly. That's the first thing. Second thing is blessing those who persecute us. And the third one is, is pursuing loving unity. And what we're going to find is we do these three things well as the people of God. The issue of racism increasingly gets resolved in our world today. It really does. So let's work through the first kingdom concept of using power rightly because racism gets resolved when we use power rightly. I shared in our message on Jesus and death that God's original plan for us, we find it in Genesis chapter one, God declares to Adam and to Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This was God's original plan for us. Another way of saying this is to say, we have been created for intimacy and influence. That's God's design for us. These desires, they are hardwired into all of us. Whether you recognize Jesus as Lord or not, it's there. A desire to be known and deeply loved by others and to make a difference with our lives. The problem is, when evil entered the world, these two desires were corrupted. That's why pornography is the biggest industry in our world today. This is why wars and conflicts happen. This is why people try to dominate one another. 
I forget who said it, but it's true. I love this quote. He who reads the news knows what's going on in the world. And he who reads the Bible knows why. It's true. Everything that's happening in our world today, it's a perversion of God's original intent for us. That's why we, uh, God's intent for us that we would live well with others and multiply that love. That's what his intent was. And that we would use power rightly as God does. Now, thankfully, there are wonderful examples of people loving others well and using their power rightly. Here's a picture just from the last couple of weeks. That's the right use of power, right? So there are wonderful examples of people that use power rightly. But I also think we all know there's lots of examples of how people use power in harmful ways. So it's important we do it rightly because otherwise in every sector of society, and really in almost every human interaction, there's power dynamics at play that we should constantly try to be aware of. In April, I shared a message on Jesus and power where I spoke from Luke chapters eight and nine about a woman with the issue of blood. And I would encourage you, go back, if you haven't listened to that one or or were here that day, go back and listen, because I'm only gonna share part of it, but it all matters. But I wanna go back to that for one point, just to help us better understand and think about how we use power rightly. Luke chapter eight. It says, now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had only a daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who is it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she could not be hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So when you consider this passage, what I did as we looked at it is I pointed out how Jesus uses power. And what I found is that Jesus uses power to draw others to him. That's one of the things we we saw here. He also uses power to restore people. He uses power to grow our faith. And then he distributes power to us so that we can share good news and set other people free. That's what Jesus does with power. And from this passage, we find that Jesus makes his way through the crowd. People are pressing all around him. A woman touches the garment of Jesus and she's healed. Now think about this woman, she's been sick with menstrual bleeding for 12 years. Jesus stops the procession. He demands to know who has touched him. Jesus then proceeds to Jairus' house from there. And when I share this message, I encourage us to think about which characters would have had more social power and why. This is really important. Uh, I want to take a look on the screen and take a look at these dynamics because maybe we haven't considered that before. I mentioned it in the message, but maybe you've missed it. But here's what we see. Jairus is a man, a bleeding woman. She's a woman. We see Jairus is named Jairus, the bleeding woman. We don't even know her name. We take a look at Jairus, he has his own home, the bleeding woman, she spent all her money on doctors who couldn't help her. 
We also see Jairus is the leader of the synagogue and the bleeding woman, she's not allowed in the synagogue, hasn't been for 12 years because of her uncleanness. We see the man, he's important in society. The woman is marginalized for a dozen years. This man has social standing to approach Jesus, whereas the woman can only secretly touch Jesus and hope for healing. For Jairus, we see he is ritually clean so he can invite Jesus into his home, whereas this woman is ritually unclean so she can't touch anyone without making them unclean according to the situation at the time. So it's easy to see that in this situation, Jairus has far more social power than the bleeding woman. But in the story, Jesus is the person with the most social power. Crowds are following him. Multitudes are asking for healing. A leading man from the town prostrates himself before Jesus. And so what Jesus chooses to do with his power here, it provides a wonderful example for us. It would have been simple for Jesus to allow the bleeding woman to be healed and continue on to Jairus' house with no one wiser except Jesus and the woman, right? He could have done that. That's not what he chose to do. And this would have been the path he chose if he was ignoring his social power. But notice that's not what Jesus does. Instead, he stops the procession. He makes Jairus wait. He identifies the bleeding woman, has her share her story of bleeding and healing in front of the entire crowd. And I mention this here because there are some who would say all power and influence is evil, but that's not true. Are there people in our society who use power poorly, who abuse others? Absolutely. But power and influence used for kingdom purposes, used the way that Jesus intends and the way that Jesus models for us, it has the ability to restore others to their God-given kingdom potential. It does if it's used rightly. Jesus doesn't ignore his social power, he simply uses it in the right way. So let's look at why Jesus stops the procession and has the woman share her story. Because think about it, forcing a woman to share about a decade of menstrual bleeding, it's socially awkward at best, right? Like who wants that conversation? Jesus asks this woman to share her story because he's not only concerned about her physical healing, he's also concerned about her socially and emotionally as well. Notice how Jesus addresses her after she shares her story with the crowd. He says, daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Her healing was physical, emotional, social, and spiritual. She was welcomed into the family of Jesus, his daughter. She's no longer banished. She's no longer been publicly declared. She's now been publicly declared as accepted. She's now welcome in the crowd. She's now welcome in the synagogue because all of her uncleanness is gone. He welcomes her. Jesus wasn't trying to humiliate her. He was holistically healing her. I love what he does there. And that's what the real definition of peace is. That's shalom, wholeness, is what Jesus is going after. Jesus was restoring this woman's place in society. So then how does Jesus use power? He takes the natural social dynamics of that situation and he flips it on its head. Jesus doesn't ignore his social power here. Instead, he uses it for the sake of others. He used his social power to restore this child of God who had no power in this setting. And so what are the implications for us? I think they're important for us. I think it's significant because as I look out in this room, and I know people joining us online in their homes and in our overflow rooms, when I consider all of the people who are a part of Connection Point Church, 
I know there are social dynamics at work and our society and culture, and Jesus usually means to flip those things on its head. That's the kingdom way. I think Jesus asks us to look at all of our social influence, our dynamics, and determine who has power and who does not. And that's going to be different everywhere that you go and every setting that you're in. And we're then not to use whatever power we have been granted for our own benefit, but for the sake of others. That's the kingdom way, depending on your setting. Think about it, your race, your gender, your family name, your educational background, your profession, or many other factors, they determine what kind of social power and influence you possess, and the question is, what are you gonna do with it? What are you gonna do with it? Will you serve others, or just try to serve yourself? Will you engage in self-preservation or self-sacrifice? Because one is the way of the world, the other is the way of our king. We actually didn't know this when we captured the picture of the soldier holding the baby. She was one of those who died in the last week. She was far more concerned with self-sacrifice than self-preservation. Can we say the same of us? Now, for sure, we can struggle to use whatever power and influence God has given us in positive and proactive ways. I think we all recognize that. And I think there's a couple of reasons for this. For one, we may not have developed the character necessary for the proper use of power. As I already shared, we were created to have influence. God gave us that, but it then can be corrupted with the evil we have in our hearts. And so it's important that we have regular encounters with God through his word, in prayer, in singing, in giving, in community with others so that the Holy Spirit can reshape us. Only God can do that work. It's important we partner with the Holy Spirit so the fruit of the Spirit can mature in our life so we can have more love and more joy and more peace, and more patience, and more kindness, and more gentleness, all these things. Think about it. If you exhibit those things well, don't you have close relationships with others? Absolutely. So to use influence rightly, we have to have the character to sustain its use. There is another reason that people abuse power. It's because we've not gone to Jesus for him to transform our pain, and so we transfer it. That's what happens. Pain that is not transformed, it gets transferred because pain has to nest somewhere. So have we gone to Jesus to address the issues in our life? So I would say this, if you're struggling to use power and influence rightly, it's important you spend time with God so that he can transform your character and transform your pain. He can do that. So a couple of questions this morning. In your home, are you using power for the sake of others or just for yourself? In your workplace, are you using whatever influence you have to help others achieve their best? If not, I encourage you, find ways to do it this week. And this matters because racism gets resolved when you use power rightly. It really does. And what we also know is racism gets resolved when we bless those who persecute us. As part of this message series, we spent a lot of time in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And in his famous sermon, here's what Jesus declares. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? 
And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The concept of loving your enemies, that's original with Jesus. No one else had ever said that before. And I don't know too many people that say it now, unless they're quoting Jesus. And so I want us to consider the context of where Jesus makes this bold declaration. When uh, some people from our church, we were in Israel a couple years ago, I had our creative arts director jump up with me to where they understand that the context of this message was shared. So here's some footage of that so you can kind of picture Jesus in this setting. So he's just north of Lake Galilee, Lake Tiberias. And over on the hillside here, what happens is there's basically this big amphitheater, natural amphitheater-like bowl that if you sit in the precipice, you can talk there and speak to thousands. So this is where it's understood that Jesus is at, just north of the ancient city of Capernaum. In this area, Jesus was speaking to, it's understood, like five to 10,000 people. That's a lot of people. And the interesting thing is, is Capernaum was a military outpost because there was a road that passed right by this area called the Hazor Highway. So this was a major thoroughfare in Israel, and so it was protected by Roman soldiers. And we know that they had a military outpost even from Scripture. We find in Luke chapter 7, after Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. It's actually understood the context is, is after Jesus shares the Sermon on the Mount, he now enters into Capernaum. And a centurion who had a servant was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. So we know a centurion normally commanded a hundred men. So there was a Roman soldier outpost with at least a hundred men in Capernaum. Not far, for Jesus is speaking to thousands, which means Roman soldiers were in the audience that day, keeping watch over the thousands of people who were there in this nation that Rome had occupied. And so it's in this context, Jesus tells the crowd, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The Jewish crowd that day, they're looking into the very eyes of the Roman occupiers. They're looking at them. And this is not a detached message. Now, it, it appears that the centurion was giving in kind, but I'll tell you, he's the exception to the rule for Rome. I think about it. The Romans who under Herod's rule, a Roman client king, killed all the Jewish male children in Bethlehem, two years old and younger, just 30 years before this event. The Romans who under Pilate's rule, a Roman governor, he kills, Pilate kills Galileans, people from the area where Jesus is speaking, who were giving their sacrifice at the temple in Jerusalem. This is recorded in Luke chapter 13. This is a current event. The Romans who just decades before, they had crucified Galileans for leading a revolt against Roman occupation. So in this context, Jesus tells the crowd, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons and daughters of your Father who's in heaven. Because this is what God did for us. This is what he did for us. Reading from Romans chapter five, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. 
For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because of our Lord Jesus Christ who has made us friends of God. What God did for us, he expects us to do for others. It's that simple. God chose to love his enemies by sending his son Jesus to die for them. And so Jesus now asks us to do the same because there is something about loving your enemies and blessing those who persecute you that absolutely breaks the power of evil behind those acts. It breaks it. We've seen this throughout history. Our family, while we were living in Jerusalem, uh, we were serving in administration at at a school for Palestinian youth. All of our uniforms for the kids, it said, peace begins with me, trying to help them understand that they can make a difference that way. And part of our goal in working with these youth was to help them to understand that the way that you defeat evil acts is by blessing those who don't treat you well. On one of the years that we were there, our high school seniors, they put together a book called Peace Works. And they, what they did is they compiled through history, and they just took some of them. They didn't even take all of them. But they took a look at history, and they found 18 different peaceful or nonviolent revolutions from India to Cuba, Poland, Tunisia, South Africa, and lots of others. And what they did is there was this research study that was done, and so it kind of compelled them to look this stuff up, of 323 violent and nonviolent resistance campaigns studied between 1900 and 2006. And what they found is the success rate of nonviolent resistance campaigns were twice as likely to achieve their full or partial success. Twice as likely compared to their violent counterparts. Like history shows this. We just don't talk a lot about it. But I want to say this. Loving your enemies, it works. It works in the world in which we live. It's just that this principle has been lost in our history books because our tendency is to celebrate heroes of war rather than peacemakers. That's just what we do in history. And I wonder why our enemy would like us to do that. Our enemy who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Whereas we serve the living God. The one who celebrates life and life everlasting. Even people who are not followers of Jesus can implement this principle of loving your enemies and see success. Gandhi, a Hindu, he followed the teachings of Jesus to lead a successful campaign for India's independence from British rule. Loving your enemies works. Martin Luther King, an American Baptist minister, also followed the teachings of Jesus, obviously. Fought against racial inequity through nonviolent means, blessing those who persecute him. Why? Because loving your enemies, it works. It works. So I would say the next time you are mistreated, which is not an if, by the way, it's a when. It really is. The next time you're mistreated, because we live in this fallen world, Jesus would encourage us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. And in so doing, here's what happens. You break the power of the enemy behind those evil acts. You break his power. And then what you begin to see is real change in that person's heart and our society at large. Because racism gets resolved when we use power rightly and when we bless those who persecute us. And racism gets resolved when the church pursues loving unity. Racism gets resolved when the church pursues loving unity. Going back to where we started this morning, Jesus in his final meal with his closest followers before going to the cross, I just want to reread those verses. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love 
one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Racism will not get resolved in our nation until the church pursues loving unity across denominational, racial, socioeconomic, and national demarcation lines. It won't get resolved. If the church has not learned to love one another, how do we expect society to do so? How do we expect it? In 1905, Charles Parham started a Bible college in Houston, Texas. And soon after, William Seymour joined Parham's school. This is a picture of Charles and William Seymour. He was the second of eight children born to emancipated slaves, raised in extreme poverty as a Catholic in Louisiana. Seymour later moved to Indianapolis in 1895 and became a born-again believer. And at the invitation of Parham's nanny, Lucy Farrow, Seymour, now partially blind from about with smallpox, he moves to Houston to pastor Farrow's local church and attend Parham's Bible school. And although Seymour's attendance at Parham's school violated Jim Crow laws in Texas, with Parham's permission, Seymour simply took a seat just outside the classroom door to learn all that he could from this spirit-filled preacher. Parham and, and Seymour, they shared pulpits and street corners in the early days of 1906. But it was interesting that even though Parham allowed him to be a part of lectures, for whatever reason, Parham would only allow Seymour to preach to blacks. And about a month later, Seymour moved to Los Angeles, California to preach good news there. He was initially rejected by the local church in Los Angeles because of his emphasis on Holy Spirit baptism. So Seymour started a prayer meeting in a friend's house that eventually was comprised of about 15 African Americans. Because of the fervor of these meetings, more people began to attend. They outgrew their space in this friend's house, and they eventually moved into an old African Methodist Episcopal church building at 312 Azusa Street in Los Angeles. Here's a picture of that building. And now these pictures are 100 years old, so yes, they're highly pixelated, folks. Different technology in those days. But here's what we know in that building. This spiritual awakening it quickly grew with crowds of up to 1,500 people packing into that small church for the better part of three years. And from the beginning, this move of God included all races. Here's a picture of the leaders of that Azusa Street mission. Isn't that awesome? Blacks and whites worshiped together at the same altar against normal segregation of the day. Think about the timing of when this occurs in our history. Seymour claimed that the Holy Spirit was bringing people together across all social lines and boundaries. Latinos soon began attending as well. And Seymour not only rejected the existing racial barriers in favor of unity in Christ, but he also rejected to then almost universal barriers to women in any form of church leadership. He just rejected it all. So my God's bigger than that. Connection Point Church, what I want to point out this morning is these are the roots of our movement. These are the roots of our church. Like, these are our people. This is where we came from. And I think we forget about that sometime. And what happened is a move of God that now sweeps across social boundary lines, and it, what it did is it empowered people to share the good news all across the world. That was birthed here with these people. The move of God, this move of God, is the start of the assemblies of God. This is who we are. But sadly, 
were other things too. Because in October of 1906, William Parham, he arrived at the Azusa Street Mission to check in on Seymour. And although Parham had allowed Seymour to to listen in on classes like I mentioned, Parham wound up preaching against races, mixing and worship services, which eventually led Seymour to dismiss Parham from his church. And if you study the history of our movement, this was not only the beginning of the end of Parham's involvement in this move of God, it was also the beginning of the end of this move of God at the Azusa Street Mission. So I want you to hear me this morning. When unity in the church is lost, so is his spirit among his people. When unity in the church is lost, so is his spirit. Because God, I mean, Jesus prays in Gethsemane. His high priestly prayer. And I think Jesus is still wondering and looking for the answer to that prayer. Make him one, Jesus, as we are one. So I would say we have to get back to our roots as a spirit-empowered people, a people of God movement across racial, ethnic, national, denominational, and socioeconomic lines. Because that's how we started. Because if we don't, the spirit of God can't be unleashed here. It can't. And it can't be resolved in our society either. Because if the church can't figure it out, how do we expect the world to? So the question is, how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we pursue loving unity as a church. Number one, we become a safe space where people can truly express themselves. When members of our congregation, no matter their race, experience prejudice or bias, and they're looking for a safe space to talk and heal, we have to be that space. We have to be that space. And what that means is, people who are wounded in our midst, they might say things that bother us. And guess what, that's okay because they're trying to work through things as we all are, right? I shared last week that the Psalms are filled with cries of the oppressed against injustice. So as we listen to others, we shouldn't expect people to talk nicely as they describe experiences of injustice. We shouldn't expect that. We've gotta be a safe space. Number two, let's think before we say things. I should probably put in here, I didn't put it here, but it ties to this. Number three, maybe close down your social media account. (laughs) (laughs) Not in my notes, but it could be tied. If that's a word from the Lord for you this morning, do it. Think before we say things. Let's think before we do it. Let's not make biased or prejudicial prejudiced statements about other races. And sometimes we'll do it off the cuff and we don't even know it. May we be a community that keeps each other accountable in the way that we talk. We don't need to go home, hear all the arguments out there on TV or online to basically just give us ammunition or help us build a case against others. Because those people, for the other people on the other side of my cultural view, because here's what I know, those people are oftentimes our people, and even if they're not, we're still called to love all of our enemies, right? Why would we do that? This is for all of us. We need to think before we say things. Number three, let's find ways to express the varying cultures in our midst. I love that this morning, and you probably even know this, our keyboardist is from Indonesia. Isn't that awesome? But we need to figure out better ways to incorporate all the cultures that exist and make Connection Point Church a great place to be. How can we do that? Maybe we need to start listening to more worship styles and songs to better engage our full congregation. We need to encourage all of our members, and I would say especially our minority members of our congregation to step up into leadership roles at the church. Why? Because then we make better decisions together. It's so important. 
Jesus says, by this, by this, through loving unity, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And here's the point. Inside the church, different races of people should not merely get along, but instead become a new humanity where old divisions no longer prevail. Why? Because as Paul writes in Ephesians, Jesus himself brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his body on the cross, he broke down the dividing wall of hostility that separated us. The church is a royal nation, scripture says, a new society in which family life, business practices, race relations, and interpersonal relationships, they're all changed. They're all different. Unity is more than standing together, occupying the same space, singing the same songs on a Sunday morning. Now that's part, but that's not the whole. True unity is eating dinner together on a Monday evening around a table in your home where you can share your joys and challenges and be honest with one another and encourage one another. Unity looks a lot more like that. True unity is looking for ways to empower minorities in our midst, toward leadership in our church so better decision-making can happen. True unity is, is turning off the TV, put down your phone, pick up your Bible so that we can be transformed by the Spirit of God and sim- instead of simply informed toward greater divisiveness. It's a big difference. We are a pilot group of, future, of the future kingdom of God, a place where the world can get a partial glimpse of what humanity will look like under the kingship and justice of Jesus. That's who we are. So when we walk out on Main Street today, instead of gathering in groups that resemble similarity, why not just walk over and introduce yourself to people you've maybe never met before? Because unity starts with us. Racial reconciliation starts with us, with you, with me, with all of us. As we look at the kingdom of God, we see that racism gets resolved when we use power rightly, when we bless those who persecute us, and when we pursue loving unity. Music team's gonna come and we're gonna close in song, so I'm gonna invite you to stand as, as they begin to come out and, and fill in on the platform. What I wanna do is I wanna come back to what became known as the Azusa Street Revival. I'd like to see what the environment was where this spiritual awakening occurred. This spiritual awakening across racial lines, across all social lines, What was that environment? What did that look like? So these are some eyewitness accounts as recorded in the book Azusa Street by Frank Bartleman. And here's what an eyewitness writes. Brother Seymour generally sat behind two empty boxes, one on top of the other. He usually kept his head inside the top one during the meeting in prayer. There was no pride there. The services ran almost continuously. Seeking souls could be found under the the power almost any hour of the day or night. The place was never closed or empty. The people came to meet God. He was always there, hence a continuous meeting. The meeting did not depend on the human leader. God's presence became more and more wonderful. In that old building with its low rafters and bare floors, God broke strong men and women to pieces and put them together again for his glory. It was a tremendous overhauling process. Pride and self-assertion, self-importance and self-esteem could not survive there. The religious ego preached its own funeral sermon quickly. Someone might be speaking, suddenly the spirit would fall upon the congregation. God himself would give the altar call. 
Men would fall all over the house like the slain in battle or rush for the altar in mass to seek God. The scene often resembled a forest of fallen trees. Such a scene cannot be imitated. I never saw an altar call given in those early days. God himself would call them, and the preacher knew when to quit. When God spoke, we all obeyed. It seemed a fearful thing to hinder or grieve the spirit. The whole place was steeped in prayer. God was in his holy temple. It was for man to keep silent. The glory of God rested there. In fact, some claim to have seen the glory by night over the building. I do not doubt it. I have stopped more than once within two blocks of the place and prayed for strength before I dared go on. The presence of the Lord was so real. I really, and I've mentioned this a couple of weeks now, but I am thoroughly convinced like God is ready to pour out his spirit upon his people. I've mentioned before, history shows crisis precedes awakenings. And because of the seat that we sit in and the people that we journey with, Shelly and I have done more in the area of pastoral care and counseling in one year than in five before it. We've been in the middle of some challenging times, but I also believe sometimes we have to go through challenging times to better understand our need of God. Matthew chapter five, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize they need help. And I don't know about you, but it's like I read those accounts and my soul gets so hungry for a people of God that are truly earnest for just him. More than anything else, more than the pursuit of anything else, but that God would just give an altar call. I want you to know you've got pastors that are praying and pleading over you right now because I firmly believe God is ready to do it, but God, he needs people that are ready to receive. And the ready to receive looks a lot like saying, Jesus, I just need you. We call that repentance, but it's like that has almost like a negative connotation. But I want you to know repentance is a good thing. I need Jesus. And in case you're unaware, you need Jesus. So why don't we just admit it? So as we close in song this morning, music team, I invite you to come up into your spaces. They're gonna lead us in song. And if you wanna sing, that's fine. But if you wanna turn your chair into an altar, do it. If you wanna come up here to this altar, let's do it. This could be, and I will say this, it's probably the most important thing you could do in your week is right now. How do you respond to Jesus? If you're at home, turn your couch into an altar. Turn it into a family altar. If you're on Main Street, turn your chair into a place where you can pray and go seek God. But let's seek God together and trust that he wants to pour out his spirit. Yes, for us, but so much more for the world in which we live that doesn't have the answer, but we do. So let's seek God together as the music team leads us.